0: How are you doing? Hello. From deep cuts to future classics.
1: On location and
0: behind the scenes. Somewhere between reasonable and crazy.
1: It was no more complicated than that.
0: Let's skip intro and find out what to watch on Netflix. Coming up.
1: The world doesn't stay still. Circumstances change, and it's the adaptable animal that will overtake the world. We can
2: do this, and nature's probably our best ally in doing it. We've just got to get smart pretty quick. This is a film which
3: is a call to action. And you'd see this beautiful plant growing, and then suddenly, halfway through shot, a slug would come into the ship.
0: I don't believe we've met. What's your name? Welcome to What to Watch on Netflix. We are in seventh heaven in this episode. As you know by now, we're the epicentre of your viewing planet – The rainforest to your delicate streaming ecosystem. The Sherpa, guiding you up the Kilimanjaro size list you've got stacked up. Why all the nature references? Well, allow me to don a safari suit, cuddle a rare pheasant, and introduce you to quite possibly one of the greatest men on Earth.
1: I am David Attenborough, and I am 93. I've had the most extraordinary life. It's only now that I appreciate how extraordinary.
0: Yes, that's right, we've cleared the decks. Today is all about one man and one man only, Sir David Attenborough. Not only has he shaped the world's vision of how we see our planet, he's done so with charm, verve and a passion that has lasted for over six decades. He's won pretty much every accolade you can imagine, but even at the age of 93, is not stopping anytime soon. Made by the WWF, A Life on Our Planet is David's most personal work yet, as he looks back over his incredible career and discusses the changes he's seen over the years. It's moving, thought-provoking, and of course, as it's David Attenborough, a brilliantly entertaining watch too. In advance of its world premiere at London's Royal Albert Hall in April, I sat down with David and a couple of esteemed colleagues to talk all things David and all things Planet Earth. To help me with my research, I got some pretty damn smart school kids to fire me over some questions for David too.
2: Hi, I'm Colin, um, I work for WWF and I'm one of the exec producers on this film. I'm David Attenborough and
1: I uh, put words to film.
3: And well, I'm Keith Scully, I'm a director of Silverback Films.
0: Thank you so much for, for joining me today, gentlemen. Uh, so David, how was making a film framed around your, your lifetime. What was that like looking back at your incredible career?
1: Well, it is a strange business that, that uh, you, you should be preserved both in vision and sound for the last uh, 70 years. Um, that's a long time. Um, and uh, you soon realise that you don't look as you did 60, 70 years ago. Um, but I suppose there was a, even looking at it myself, I think you innocent chap, you didn't know what was going on, really. And looking back, I mean, it was these guys alongside me who sort of said to me, you do realise, don't you, you've had uh, an extraordinarily privileged time that you've been able to go wherever you wanted in the world, everything paid for, I mean, not luxuriously, but... You could go anywhere that it was possible to go with a cameraman, just one guy, home for, for ten years, that's, that's what I did. And, and I see the images of myself just having a ball. That's just unbelievable. What was it like for you, Colin, looking back at
0: that archive of, of footage?
2: Well, it was incredible But we were... Keith and I were having a conversation year, sort of a couple of years back now and sort of realised that given that the time when air travel started, um, so anybody that was had a career like like that before David wouldn't have been able to travel and see so much of it and obviously now so much has been lost that there was sort of we were wondering is it possibly you and know, possibly he's seen more of the natural world than any other human being who's ever lived and how amazing that was and to start back and start looking at the archive and try and see what, what were the key moments what exists what's changed in the world it was an incredible privilege to start to look back at that stuff with that with that fresh eyes.
0: Keith, were those archives, were they kind of like a, the, the holy grail of, of natural history programming?
3: Well, they are. And of course, what I find personally quite amusing about the archive is um, I joined the story about halfway through because there's all this this footage of David from the, the 50s and early 60s. And then I started working with, with David my, myself in the 80s um, But the footage of him, there's a shot in the film of him in a balloon, and actually I was in the neighbouring balloon, and we (laughs) had an adventure that day. But, um, you know, I was a young guy in my early 20s, and David's still looking pretty, you know, young and sprightly, and by that time you must have been in your late 50s, (laughs) which is extraordinary. So it's it's fascinating seeing all those different stages uh, through, through David's life. And it's a real reflection of the change in the last half century. Yes, it's,
1: it's a change in programming, it's, in, uh, it's in a change in ecological circumstances too. Um, in the 50s, you know, you could go in the middle of Borneo and, and, and get lost. We didn't have any, any electronic devices. Uh, and I, uh, we spent, uh, well, I suppose, a week or ten days uh, living in a, in a long house in, in the middle of the jungle. It was just paradise, you know, that we hadn't got any phones or, or anything. And I remember very well one day sitting on the veranda of the Longhouse, which is what you did, drinking rice wine and stuff, and, and seeing a little canoe come pelting up the river, a chap in the back, paddling like a mad thing. I'm like, what on earth is here? There must be some custom I'm not, with which I'm not familiar. And to my astonishment, he came up and he... he Parked his canoe and he came up onto the longhouse and to my astonishment he gave me a little thing in a piece of paper, but in a cleft stick. Now in the stories in the old the old explorers' stories in the 19th century, people were always sending messages to another in European in a cleft stick. You could realize why this was in the cleft stick, because this bloke had only got a loincloth, and if you didn't <laughs> have it in the cleft stick, <laughs> he wouldn't have wanted to read it. <laughs> 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 but but it was a... It was a an, And it turned out that it was a message from the film department in, in Alexander Palace up in uh, the first television studios, and it said, Strongly recommend use Reflector when using Kodachrome. <laughs> <laughs> Where well, they thought we were going to get a Reflector from, I have no idea.
0: Sent via loincloth. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned briefly that the sort of the evolution of programming of course which your your career has spanned all of these changes these evolutions of, of course at one time you a controller at, at bbc2 did you ever imagine programming reaching the, the point that it is now or does it does it still fascinate you
1: oh it still fascinates me um, and of course it has transformed uh, the whole of television broadcasting has transformed in my time when you reckon that I started um, uh, in '52, uh, and everything was live, and it all came from two small studios at Alexander Palace. Uh, and in 405 lines, nobody knows what lines are these stories, and that was the way it was transmitted. Uh, and if you want to see what those cameras like, they were mounted on bicycle wheels, and they had an optical image in which, the, along a viewfinder, in which the cameraman saw couldn't look through the camera's lens. He saw one alongside, uh, and in it he was a picture upside down in colour because it was just optical. It wasn't, uh, and those cameras are just half a mile down the road in Science Museum now, um, and and from that. You knew every year, every year there was going to be more money because more license holders. There were going to be more viewers you're going to spread from outside London. There was going to be um, more broadcasting hours. Everything was there to play for. And you just lapped it up. You, I, mean, I think I did say to myself, uh, you know, you are the luckiest man alive. How come that just this little band of brothers up at Alexander Palace... Are the only people in Europe making television, and you can dream up any idea for the programme that you like, and you. The, the... <laughs> The bloke who organised our department, which was called the Talks Department, which is an absurd idea in itself, he would came coming to the canteen and said, has anybody got an idea for a 20-minute programme? And we said, oh, yeah, we've got a lot of... Well, when? He said, well, it'll be a week on Thursday. Tell us by 4 o'clock this afternoon, cos the Radio Times is going to press. See? So we sat up, well, there must be something we could do, yeah. And he jumped about like that. I mean, it was... And the programmes were terrible.
3: <laughs> But essentially you say, David, that, that um, a lot of things have changed, but when you were controller of BBC Two, you invented the landmark series with, uh, with Civilization, wasn't it, and then The Ascent of Man, and then you went, went on to make your own with life, life on Earth. But that model, that format, has served all of us since the late 60s, and we're still making landmark series in the way that you devised. And, and actually the format and a lot of the things that were created by BBC Two at that time have lasted as the basic foundation stones of modern broadcasting.
1: I suppose that's so. I suppose that's so. Um, it has opened up the world in an extraordinary way, hasn't it? I mean, every, people know what... I mean, I you know, we were the first people to film... Komodo dragons, uh, not quite, there was in the 20s, 1920s, there was a, an American crew who took a few 35 mil side. But, but otherwise, this is the first time, now, everybody goes to Komodo. Mm. I mean, uh, uh, we were the first that when we arrived in Java and said, I want to go to Komodo, there's nobody in Java who knew where Komodo was mm. for the Komodo dragon, and now you get how many ships, tourist trips a day. Mm. But, of course, there's a sad side of that too because the unknown world or the uh, the world not affected by Western materialism has been wiped out pretty well and you can't go to places. There aren't places. There must be somewhere.
3: But it's interesting now, anywhere you go on the globe, you communicate with a satellite phone or something. You. You're no longer ever on your own. No. Which, of course, you were early days. Entirely. And, and we own. were
1: there for... A, when we went to come we disappeared mm. off the map for, I think it was nine weeks or something. And friends that we had... We had a... a met an American friend and a Dutch friend in Java. Um, and they knew that we were... God, Charlie and I had gone off for ourselves. And after whatever it was, three weeks, we have never heard from him. We have got no messages, you know. And eventually, they got so alarmed they were on the verge of calling out the United States search and rescue people with whom they had a contact. And how are they, all they were going to do? God knows. So you go fly eastwards, go over the islands, and see whether you can find a ship with a couple of white blokes in it. I mean, I
0: <laughs> You make a great point, actually, about um, uh, David being—you've been at the the forefront of these advances. And there was a time when you would have been in, in real obscurity. What's your relationship like with technology then? Do you do you have a good relationship with it? Or do you do you Modern miss the technology. kind of a, yeah? Do you miss the the purity of no phones, pre-streaming?
1: I'll tell you a, a, a terrible confession, or maybe you think it's not so terrible because I suppose it's in, in my power. I don't use email. At all. Really? Well, I get 30 or 40 letters a day. That's for people who've gone to the trouble of taking out a piece of paper, writing, putting it in an envelope, sealing it, sending it, and putting it in a post box with a stamp on it. Uh, if if you, all you had to do was to type in a, a, some kind of code name for me and they could talk to me, I, God knows how many people would be talking to me. <laughs> so I reckon that that's a good, it's a good kind of filter. If you, don't, if you want to talk to me, you've got to put, write something on a piece of paper and put a stamp on it. But
3: it's interesting, in your broadcasting career, you always embraced technology. You introduced colour uh, with BBC Two. You, you were a doctor of 3D. You know you, You've always loved...
1: Yeah. Filmmaking
3: technology. Yes, and, and, but and that's embraced b- it.
1: That was because, in fact, it, we started at a very low level, technical level. You can't imagine anything lower than it was, and it was a, every step was new and every step was exciting. Technically, I'm talking about my private life now, though. Yes. When I'm saying I don't use email.
2: The thing I've loved, though, about the, the advanced instances in technology for the programmes you guys have created is the new animal behaviour that has been revealed as a result of the mm. the, the, the low-light cameras, the ability to... Even recently, was we used on our planet, the, the quality of drones, the Cineflex, just the ability to uncover stuff you never knew was happening or you suspected might be happening, but, you, but you'd but never seen it. It's incredible. Yes, uh,
1: but, well, and and it's nice because you now can go and reshoot everything you did. Yeah. Um, Endless career
2: regeneration. <laughs> yes, yeah,
1: but it's true. I mean, yeah. uh, I'm in the, about halfway through making... Well, whenever it was, or perhaps it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I made a series about plants, which Keith would remember very well. Uh, and, and I think it was Keith saying, we've got this wonderful... This was 30 years ago. We've got these wonderful new techniques. We can make, speed up the action. We can see plants moving and opening buds and wonderful. Now they're saying... We've got wonderful stuff in which you can have multi cameras and etc. You know, etc. Cetera, et cetera, and it's going to be transformed. So we are now remaking private life of plants.
3: And we always had the problem because in those days, because we were shooting on film, you couldn't see. So you'd leave this time lapse running for say a month, and you you couldn't see what you'd got until you'd taken the film out of the camera, sent it to the lab, and then it would come back, and you'd see this beautiful plant growing. And then suddenly, halfway through shot, a slug would come into the ship and, and
1: eat the crucial bit. Like, oh. And eat and, and speed it up motion too. <laughs> <laughs> and now they can
3: watch it as it's going. So when the slug goes up, they can either remove the slug or, yeah. or start again. So, um, yeah,
1: And so we'll see. Well, um, but... Um, It's true that I think that there are very few animals of a significant kind. I mean, of course, there are subspecies that you've never seen before or, indeed, species you've never seen before because there are millions of species in the world. But, Barnard, every big mammal, type of mammal that I can think of, has been filmed. And uh, there there may be some antelope that you've never known about, but by and large, if you're a member of the public, an antelope is an antelope is an antelope. And so there's no big shock that you got. But it was wonderful in, in the 50s. Nobody had seen a sloth. You know, nobody bothered to look at armadillos. Uh, all sorts of stuff. You know, they'd never seen before. So it didn't matter how badly you filmed it. They said, here is a sloth. Now, you've never seen one of these before. And people were there with their jaw sagging. So it was a a paradise for an animal filmmaker, and and I was very lucky. When
0: was the last time you saw something that you you hadn't seen before, then? must take a lot to to probably wow and impress you now.
1: There are birds that uh, I haven't seen before, uh, but they differ because that one's got a white bill and that one's got a yellow bill or whatever. We sent you, for
3: Christmas, we sent you the display of the Argus pheasant. You did, indeed. Because that was something that you did. you've been looking for for about I, the last tried 70 to, years.
1: I tried to film Argus pheasant several times for various reasons. It's, it, it's an enormous uh, bird in, uh, in Borneo, which has the most extraordinary and wonderful display. Um, and it's notoriously nervous, so you you find a display ground of this huge thing i mean it's it's what four feet three meters long, something of that sort um, uh, with 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 the feathers involved uh, and i and i never seen a display uh, and it's no good just reading an account of it in a book when it says you know it opens its wings i mean it's, it's more than that um but I, I, I had tried several times on trips in Borneo. We found a display ground, but we built hides, but the bird never returned and so on. Um, and in fact, uh, the only reason, if I may say so, Keith, that you got one, mm. um, is that you had a camera trap. Absolutely. You had cameras no, that were, no were there, there, which are triggered, you know, when the, when the bird appears and will run as long as there's action and then wait for a sort of 30 seconds and then stop. And,
3: and even that, that camera trap had to be left there for months to be able to get the shot. So it's, it's, it's extraordinary.
1: And, and, and the funny thing was, that Keith, very, because he knows I have this obsession with various things, like uh, uh, an Argus Pheasants is one of them, uh, and he sent me this, he said, ''We've just got this back.'' And I assumed it was a cover trap. Yeah. And um, I, I, I put it in the machine and, and started running it. And there was this wonderful, wonderful bird, the male looking very jaunty with his tail along that. And, and I, in the far distance, on the other side of the, of the display ground, the female appears. I thought, oh my God, this is going to be so exciting. And, and the male looked round and he saw her and he ran towards her and just out of camera shot, so all I saw was the back end of this bird. <laughs> and I could see from what... The, he was in the marvellous display. I was in my wits end at Richmond, Surrey, saying, move the camera up, for God's sake! <laughs> and, of course, it's a camera trap. But... They were two to their well. I think they put that on just to, just to uh, wind you <laughs> up. Yes, <yeah>, wind me <laughs> up. And, there were, and then followed just the most wonderful pictures. Amazing. Wonderful pictures. Never seen before. I would say that there wouldn't be half a dozen people in the world who'd ever seen that. Mm. Certainly not in the wild. Of course, there, there are some, there were captive birds that, that were seen. But this is a wild bird really doing its mm. stuff.
0: So, Keith, you solved the question, what to get Sir David Attenborough for Christmas. Exactly. Footage of an Argus Fesson. Yeah,
3: because he's the man who has everything else.
0: <laughs> the, one, the one thing that was missing yes, in his exactly. collection. Exactly. Uh, you mentioned earlier, David, that there, there is a sort of a, a sad aside to this, which is you've seen things that, that perhaps aren't, aren't available to see anymore. And this, this film felt quite, quite heavy in parts. Was, it wasn't always easy to watch. Was it intended to, to shock people into action in that way?
1: Oh, yes, this is a film which is a call to action. I mean, it's... um, And thanks to Colin and and Keith, they have recognised that I've been that lucky and that that there has been material I've shot over 60 years, 70 years that could be put together to tell a story. Um, And and they've done that, and uh, looking at it... uh, um, I find it quite moving, of course. I mean, I'm an old guy, you know, and and this old guys sitting in corners thinking about their what happened when they were young. Well, I can see it, and so it's it's a sort of mixed mixed blessing, really. No, that's not that's not true. It's it's uh, it's because it's it's delight recognised in tranquility or re- remembered in tranquility. And so you sit there and you think, oh, by golly, you, you were dead lucky, weren't you? And I would like to think it was true. I realised how lucky I was. Mm. I really did. And I remember the very first trip I did, which was to West Africa, with my cameraman pal, Charlie Lagos, the same age as me. He, he was an amateur. He was not a professionally trained cameraman. And, uh, and we spent three months trekking around Sierra Leone Filming uh, whatever we could, and uh, and the last the last trip we went upriver to try and find pygmy hippopotamus, uh, which we didn't find, but nonetheless we shot up various other things and so on. And we were coming back uh, in this in this large canoe, lying outstretched, looking at the tropical night with the stars, clear sky, and moon. And I said to Charles the end of three months him and me just him and me together i don't know Charles. i said i reckon if we might play our cards right we might have got enough material to persuade the bbc's us go out on another trip together wouldn't that be great and he said yeah that'd be great and we did it for 10 years year after year after year what luck what fantastic luck The living world is a unique and spectacular marvel. Yet, the way we humans live on Earth is sending it into a decline. Human beings have overrun the world. We're replacing the wild with the tame. This film is my witness statement. And my vision for the future. The story of how we came to make this our greatest mistake. And how, if we act now, we can yet put it right.
0: You say that nature will, I'm paraphrasing, but that nature will always sort of find a way to survive, and it's it's up to us to decide whether it takes us with it. That's that's quite heavy.
1: Well, it's heavy, all right. Um, and and um, the film that, we've, that we are talking about now that we've just made um, has got some pretty shocking sights in it um, as to the way we have changed, not just camera and television people, but everybody, how we've changed the world um, and how, how the sort of experiences that this film chronicles in its first half are difficult to repeat, if not impossible.
0: You also say that animals evolve to overcome obstacles and for humans we just need to get smart. Are we not getting smart enough fast enough? What, what, what do you think the,
2: yeah, the problem I think, is? I think the interesting thing is we are obviously the smartest species that have ever lived on, on, on this planet and, and a series of incredible ideas have led to us to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow, and grow but at the same time not put in place the checks of what the impacts are going to be. And I think what the film reveals, what David's the, the witness statement that David David lays out in the film, is that we've actually got to a point where we've destabilised the whole planet. So it's not just small, localised issues, it's destabilising the whole planet. And so the level of how quickly we've got to get our heads around that, come up with the solutions, well, actually, we have lots of the solutions, but deploy the solutions at speed to stabilise it again requires us to act not only incredibly smartly, but to use the best of technology to communicate to everybody at the same time, to get a lot of people to to, to do that on a big scale. So, I think we've got smart, if you like, on individual problem solving—the technology we're all using today, the the, the the medical advances, things like that. But collectively, as a species, to understand where we are and what we can do about it, um, we we haven't yet deployed that. And I hope this this film at least is part of a helping of telling that story and, and, the, and the ways out of it because the last half of the film, the last third of the film, very much, I think, feel like we can do this and nature's probably our best ally in doing it. So there's, there's, there's definitely an uplift to it. Um, we've just got to get smart pretty quick.
0: So is that, is that why you feel a, a life on our planet is its kind of crucial viewing at this moment in time, David?
1: There's an obligation on us as broadcasters, really. Um, there are plenty of people out there uh, who've never we've never been able to talk to before, and they're out there now. Um, and it's quite a, quite a sophisticated thing to say. Uh, there's carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, uh, and if we go on producing carbon dioxide, it's going to act as a shield, and it's kind of earth's temperature is going to turn up, and rain and uh, fertile areas can become deserts. That paragraph or those few sentences, you know, require a lot of understanding. Why does carbon dioxide, and what is carbon dioxide anyway? And where does it come from? And how can we affect it? And if you say what you said is true, um, what is the connection between carbon dioxide and temperature? It's very, it's sophisticated stuff. Um, And, uh, and if, if, if people are going to understand that, they have to understand quite a lot about science. And we have an obligation to enable scientists to explain that in what in way that we can. Because this is not just fun. It's not just intellectual curiosity for the sake of it. It depends upon us understanding it. Because if we don't understand it, we are going to do it planet is headed for disaster. We need to learn how to work with nature rather than against it. And I'm going to tell you how.
0: Well, this is effectively about the, the planet that we leave to the next generation. So we have got some questions from kids. Um, for you we will start with a question from polly
2: hi my name is polly boswell and i am age nine my question is
4: over such a long career you must have seen many changes what place in the world that you have been
2: to has seen the greatest change how and why
1: i suppose harking again is is borneo Um, because i I know borneo well i know bits of it quite well Uh, and when i first went there it was rainforest 100 foot high um, and now uh, it is nothing but oil palms, and it's all very well saying how dreadful that people knocked down the forest for oil palms. why did they knock down the forests? Because the world has three times, four times as many people in it as when I started filming. Three times as many, and they're all hungry, and they all want things to eat. And so we've put pressure on people in, in Southeast Asia to plant oil palms. We did. You know, um, we encourage them to do that, and it's, it's all very well to say, "All right, we're going to stop using palm oil." What about these poor people who actually have got these plantations, which you're worrying about? What about them? Uh, and the answer is that, so that, at this stage in the game, uh, we have to say, "Please stop knocking down virgin rainforest." But not, don't stop producing oil palms because we need it. And the kind of oil palms, oil that we produce, um, is, is much more productive per acre than, than any, anything else we can plant. There's a lot to be said for oil palm. So it's a complicated question. I mean, human beings are complicated organisms, and, and, and we have created a mess, and we need understanding if we're going to solve it. Which leads me on to Ewan's question.
4: Hi, my name's Ewan, I'm eight years old, and this is my question. What can schools do better to help the climate change crisis, and why?
2: I think schools are actually one of the the great highlights in all of this. Um, I think you're starting to see schools with the climate protests and um, taking real action. I think, if anything, the obligation goes the other way around. Um, I think for us to all sort of take on that level of responsibility and act at the the, the level they're asking of us... Um, but I think one of the things that could be added into schools, and I hope that, again, the latter half of this film does some of this, is to explain that the solutions are possible. Because I do worry a little bit, actually, that particularly young people today that have grown up in a world of, of real uncertainty and destabilisation that we've had for the last 10 or 15 years or really known about for the last 10 or 15 years, that it's difficult... You know, A lot of young people are feeling really un- worried and uncertain, rightly so, but we need to show that there's a route out of this too. And I think there's a real obligation on us to show both of those things, that it is possible...
0: And a question from Jake. Hi, my name's Jake, I'm 13, and my question is, what animal has adapted to change in its climate the best?
3: Well, I mean... uh, (laughs) That's a good one. That's (laughs) That's a a great question. That's (laughs) a tricky one. I mean, you would probably have to say right now we are humans, Um, because what we have done is we've been able to actually turn every environment into our environment. So, um, And that's what's made us such a destructive force because we, 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 we've actually just, just been able to, yes, take any bit of the world and turn it into our bit of world. Um, so we probably win that competition. Um, I think if you want to take an animal that I, I always think is just the most extraordinary... Uh, if, if, you, if you take something like a dolphin and you think, this is a mammal like us... And um, Or a sperm whale, a mammal like that, can live all its life in the ocean. And a sperm whale can dive to the deepest part of the ocean and hunt in total darkness for squid and stuff like that. I, I, I think that's probably one of the most extreme um, adaptations that we see in, in the, the, the natural world.
1: There are two kinds of adaptation, you see. There is the highly specialised one, as you've just described... But there is also the one which is adaptable, and that's what human beings are. They are infinitely adaptable. We can put on fur coats, you know, if we're in the in cold areas of the world, and we can take off and walk around in in swimming trunks if in the, it's a hot part of the world. Um, animals, very few animals, of that degree of adaptability. And as Keith says, I mean, human beings now, we go to the the top of Everest, queue up to do so, and we can drive to the bottom of the sea. We go in from cold to hot, we can do anything. Animals by and large uh, have become, or a number of animals have become highly specialised. When you're highly specialised, you're very vulnerable because you can't adapt. And so it's a highly specialised animal which lives in has become a, uh, adapted to live under very specific circumstances. The world doesn't stay still. Circumstances change. They've never changed as fast as they are doing just at the moment. And it's the specialist animal that's in danger, and it's the adaptable animal that will overtake the world. The most adaptable animal uh, that we can think of? Well, OK, knock out, uh, forgetting human beings, the rat. Why is the rat everywhere in the world that the humanity has ever gone? It can, it, it, there are rats that have developed rather thick fur and can live in cold circumstances. There are rats which can live in tropical circumstances and they can eat anything. And so, rats, by and large, are one of the most successful animals in the world.
0: I don't think I've ever heard you speak and not learnt something new, ever, (laughs) since I was a child. Um, And there are, of course, decades and decades of footage that you have have given us. I need to get a recommendation from you, David. Is there a scene from one of your programmes that you would would most recommend, a a must-watch scene?
1: Oh, there are a million... Uh, and I, I, I mean the one I'm not allowed to forget of course is actually one of the moments in my life which, which is in, indelible in my mind and of course that was the, 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 the few minutes that I spent with gorillas in, in uh, Central Africa uh, where thanks to the, uh, an extraordinary American woman called Diane Fossey who had spent years um, habituating those mammals to trust human beings that was the only reason that happened. Uh, but I, I went there thinking that it was, they, they were wild animals, and very big and powerful wild animals are two. And while I'm preparing to, to say something to the camera, that, that one of them comes out of, the, out of the bush, a full-grown female gorilla, and puts a hand on my head. And she could have taken my head off, I mean, easily, easily. You know, fists, like and the strange and unforgettable thing is that I wasn't in one way worried, one particle of fear in my mind at all. She was she she communicated friendliness, and if you've got any experience of animals at all, you know that sort of thing. you know when an animal is ferocious, you know when a dog is likely to bite you or not, and it was like that. It was like meeting another humanoid creature that was friendly disposed and it was enough to bring tears to the eyes.
0: Incredible. And Colin and Keith, this this podcast is called What to Watch on Netflix. I have to get recommendations from you. What have you watched on Netflix that you absolutely love?
2: Um, well, the last couple of weeks, it's, so this is where I feel like I should be purely picking documentaries and things. I love stuff like Game Changers, which just, just watch. Um, but um, we're just... Binging the second series of um, Sex Education, which is awesome. Um, I watched, really? Yeah, it's really good. I'm, I'm getting it, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, Would you recommend Sex Education to Sir David Attenborough? Uh,
2: the, the series, of course. I'm sure it's very. <laughs> 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 but yeah, uh, absolutely, definitely. You got that's uh, no, fantastic. And uh, also, uh, I watched uh, Annihilation the other night. There's the the film that that was. Brilliant! Uh, a really, in- really interesting twist on sort of evolution and, and and stuff like that. So that was great. And Bojack Horseman. Um, I just feel like I need to say Bojack which, Horseman which on the podcast. I just can't not say that on the podcast. So um. well,
3: I'm going to be more conservative. but I do love the Crown, uh, and um, the, it's it's such a clever way not only of of um, revealing obviously the the history of the royal family, but also an insight into the world, now that I'm in a... The series has got to a point where I can remember events. It, it, it's a fascinating way of shining a different light on, on those events and, and putting them together um, from the perspective of actually that one family. So um,
0: Now, the, the, the premiere of A Life on Our Planet happens here, where we're sitting right now, the Royal Albert Hall, April 16th. What a, a, a perfect venue for something on the, on the scale of what you've made. Yes,
2: it's, I mean, it's going to be incredible. It's um, an awesome venue anyway, and 4,500 people in here. Um, there's 500 free tickets to have uh, been given to young people who've done amazing stuff around the country for conservation. Um, so really amazing audience. And then, of course, a few days later um, on Netflix. So um, millions can get to see it around the world.
0: Gentlemen, thank you so much. And thank you, Sir David Attenborough, for, for a lifetime of, of, of footage that we'll live on. Thank you so much, gentlemen.
2: Thank, Thank you.
0: you. A Life on Our Planet comes to Netflix very soon, and you'll love it. But the end of April is no good to you now. I appreciate that, which is why I set off the Gina Claxon. And like Wonder Woman, if Wonder Woman spent all day in front of the telly instead of fighting injustice all over the world, she answers your call. Gina! Gina, here we are again.
4: Hello, Dottie. Merci. Before
0: you give me the rundown... Of what's new on Netflix, mm. I have a question for you. Tell me. Have you watched Love is Blind? I'm embarrassed to say I have not watched Love is Blind. You've got more important things to do than watch a group of psychos profess their love for each other a minute after having met.
4: Yeah. I've <laughs> Honestly, I feel like the tweets, I'm enjoying the tweets more than I may even enjoy the show. Honestly, like I really, really, really love the tweets. The conversation has been fantastic.
2: I've met the person I want to spend the rest of my life with.
4: I've never seen her before.
0: Love is blind aside. What else is there for
4: us okay. this weekend? So dropping today, Spencer Confidential, starring Mark Wahlberg and my favourite person in the world, Winston Duke. If you don't know who Winston Duke is, if you remember in Black Panther, you know who Winston Duke is. Uh, I know who Winston Duke is. Uh, in Black Panther, the guy that was sitting on the throne, he was like, ooh, ooh, ooh Are you done? Yes, that's the one in the mountains. Mm. That's the guy, that's the guy, that's the guy. Action film, it's from the same producers as Fast and Furious. Think... Corrupt cops, cops. Think drugs. Think weapons. Think action. People getting licked on the head. People getting dashed over. People getting this. People getting that. That's the kind of. Film oh, we've is got. it
0: the kind of action movie where if these things happened in real life, everybody would have been dead after ten minutes? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. My favourite type of action movie. <laughs> yes. 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 Yes.
1: You're in big trouble. For what?
4: You
0: smashed the car through a restaurant. <laughs> also, Post Malone is in it full stop (laughs) maybe a cameo we didn't know we needed yes fine there it is how is his acting range I think you should watch the film okay fantastic shout out to Post okay shout out to Post is he a better or worse rapper turned actor than Ludacris oh that is let's be honest the bar is on the floor (laughs) the bar is in hell um (laughs) okay fine ice cube
4: no, stop it. Ice Cube can act. Don't even try. it.: no, he's good to be he, fair. Yeah,
0: we've got off topic. Yeah, well, we have, what else we have. is there?
4: Okay, didn't drop today, but you may not be aware of it. Spirited Away is on the service. This is important because i have got some Studio Ghibli films. The first seven dropped on the 1st of February. Now we have the next seven dropping on the 1st of March.
0: Uh, and Spirited Away is one of them. Have you seen Spirited Away? I have not seen Spirited Away, but if, like me, you haven't got a clue what studio ghibli is all about you can go back to our next in fashion episode of what to watch on netflix which first aired on the 7th of feb where jonathan ross joins us to talk all things studio ghibli and spirited away all right one more one more
4: thing shutter island is on the service i mention this because scott leonardo dicaprio in sold also, it kind of reminds me of Inception in that it's, like, confusing. Is this happening? Is, is, is it real? Is it fake? Is it in his mind? But it's on an island, basically. Give you a briefing about the institution.
2: All I know is it's a mental hospital.
4: But they criminally insane. So here's what it is. If you are used to lying in social situations about having seen Shutter Island, now's your time to watch it on the service. A lot of people lie about that. I stay lying about a lot of things I've seen. I was gonna lie about seeing Love Is Blind Love is Blind, but I thought safe space. Do you know what I mean? Fair enough. Yeah.
0: You can be you can be open here. Thank you so much. Appreciate you, Dobby. <laughs> Until next week, Gina. It's been fun. Thanks, Gina. And of course, thanks to Sir David, Colin, and Keith. Next week is the last episode of the season. But boy, oh boy, what a finale we have for you to discuss the much-anticipated second season of Afterlife and, I'm sure, a few other things too, it's going to be an absolute pleasure to sign off with none other than Ricky Gervais. You will not want to miss it. What to Watch on Netflix is hosted by me, Dottie, and is written and produced by Jamie East. Editing and additional production comes from Cup and Nuzzle. What are you watching on Netflix? We'd love to know. Get in touch with us on Twitter at Netflix UK.